Well, good morning. Um, this year, we're, we're thinking about together um, the good news that, that the word that we have from God is, is a story. It's one story um, spoken by one God to one people. And this story, as, as we're hearing over and over again, tells the story that God made everything and that in our sin, everything has been broken and that God, through Christ, has fixed everything and that one day, all that's been fixed will be finished, will be finalized. You see, God's people receive a story long before they can extrapolate doctrine. They need a worldview in which to live, to discover their meaning next to a God who's made them, who's redeemed them who's sanctifying them, and who will one day bring heaven back to earth. This week and next week, we're going to kind of take a break from the sort of uh, chronology of redemptive history. We're going to take a little pit stop, and we're going to think about uh, what does it mean to live in light of this story? Uh, so instead of sort of advancing the story, we're going to, we're going to look at wisdom literature today, and then next, uh, next week, Easter Sunday, Pastor Dave's going to continue that um, as well. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have your Bible, you're, you're welcome to open uh, there. We're going to be looking at chapter uh, 12 uh, together. Um, just a couple of things before we read this section and before we get started. Um, Ecclesiastes uh, is, is a different book. Um, if you've never uh, read this essay before, um, I'll give you a warning. Many have experienced this book as deeply pessimistic, as troubling and sad and, and in some ways questioned whether or not it's actually God's word. And yet what I want you to hear this morning is that it is God's word and that it is doing something that we don't expect. The preacher, as he calls himself, is actually defending the faith of God's people in a generous God by expressing the grim alternative he is trying to carry us along into joyful faith of our God by showing us the grim alternative, life distant from him. So it's not pessimistic, it's just brutally honest. It's refreshing. And it's showing us, God is showing us what it might look like to live in light of his four-part story. So the words will be on the screen. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. I'm actually going to start in verse 8, um, and then we'll continue through verse 14. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of light, and, to uprightly, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My aware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a wearisome to of all flesh, is weariness to all flesh, excuse me. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. Let's pray. 
Father, would you um, be at work in these days? We trust that you're faithful to your word, to use it, um, to bring us to faith, to grow us in that faith. Spirit, would you bear witness in our hearts the good news of Jesus and your word here? Would you be our tutor? Would you help things plain, to be plain to our ears? Would you help us uh, to see Christ? Would you again help us to taste and see the goodness of our God? All for sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There's a recent movie that uh, depicts the story of of friendship. Um, Beautiful friendship and friendship lost. It's set in 1923 off of an obscure island off the coast of Ireland. Um, It's a pretty bleak time in Irish history. And it's the story of these two friends who it seems don't have any other friends. Um, Their life is is, is pretty simple. In fact, so simple, something they do every single day is they meet at the local pub for a pint. They've been friends for many years and Early in the story, uh, one friend's at the pub with his other friend, and he just, he says something shocking. He says, I don't like you anymore. He goes on to say, I have this tremendous sense of time slipping away from me. I need to spend that time thinking and composing, not listening anymore to the dull things you have to say. Friend's sister, he says, he's boring. This character's name is Colm. I think Colm's words give voice to our hearts. We are desperate for our lives to be significant, for them to matter, for them to have some semblance of weight to them, for our absence on earth to be missed for the work that we've done to outlast us. Colm was a musician, and he loved the fact that all these sort of 18th century classical musicians, their music lives well beyond their years, and and he's sort of channeling this, and he says, you're too boring for me. I want something significant. I want to matter. And so with that in mind, I kind of want to use that image to sort of ask these questions. It's sort of the same question asked a couple of different ways as we sort of uh, consider this text together. And there and are these. First is like, what, what, what does it look like for our life to matter? Like, how will our life matter? What do we need to do? What do we need to know? What does a life of substance look like? How do we live well in the four-part story? How do we see the story that God has written and how do we live faithfully in it? And and maybe another way to express it would be how does wisdom, or excuse me, what does wisdom look like? You see, the book of Ecclesiastes is actually named for the person speaking. He refers to himself as the preacher. And Ecclesiastes, through a couple different language jumps, is actually the Hebrew word for preacher. And so it's his essay, it's his sermon And he is asking this question, what makes life worthwhile? What makes it worth living? So I want to make three stops. And and I think the three stops, he sort of carries us along in the passage and even throughout his entire uh, essay. We've got to get honest about our emptiness. We've got to get honest about our control. 
It's an invitation to get honest. What does wisdom look like? Getting honest. Getting honest about our emptiness, getting honest about our desire to control, and finally getting honest about our fear. All right, so let's hit the first one. We've got to get honest about our emptiness. The, the verse that I began with is verse 8, and it's, and it's this refrain that he says throughout his sermon, vanity of vanities. All of life is vanity. The Hebrew word vanity is simply smoke or mist or vapor or dust. He looks out across his life and life under the sun, and he says everything, everything is absolutely ultimately empty. And so he arrives at this sort of grim conclusion, and, and we want to know what it is. Like, how did you come to this? He comes to this by sort of sitting us down, if you will. I sort of envision the preacher uh, sitting on the front porch in a rocking chair, maybe facing a beautiful setting, maybe like the beach or the sound at sunrise or sunset, maybe the mountains, and he begins to preach. And this is how he comes to his conclusion. He thinks about his life. He thinks about his pursuit of meaning in it, and he begins to share all these stories. He begins to share with us the jokes that he shared. He begins to share with us the wine that he drank. He begins to share with us the, the settings that took his breath away, the money that he spent, the possessions that he amassed, the music that he danced to, the sex that he had, the applause he received, the hard work he gave himself to. He begins as he's rocking in that chair to tell us about his wrestling match with God and what it felt like. I'm so distant in the face of evil. He tells us what it's like, the goodness of the church and the curse of the church and living with broken people. And through it all, as he sort of finishes his rocking chair monologue, he says, nothing could satisfy my soul. It was empty. Earlier in the book, in chapter 3, he writes that God has put eternity in each of our hearts, and yet we still don't know the beginning from the end. In other words, he was looking out, and in all of his pursuit of meaning was returning void. Why? Because he was made for something even more, something even deeper, something even more rich. And so he's left with these honest words, life is meaningless Empty and futile. He heard it from his dad as well. He had to have. In Psalm 144, David says this, man is like a breath. That may have been confusing. Many believe that the preacher could have been Solomon. Man is like a breath. His days like a passing shadow. In other words, the preacher is saying that our entire life is a blink. Friends, no one will remember this sermon no one will actually remember me. No one will actually remember the beloved masters next week. Chances are no one will remember you in a number of generations. And we hear these things and we're like, Skylar, you are depressing me. But remember, remember the preacher's point. And he actually says it in verse 10. He says, I sought to give you words of delight. You see, he wants us to be honest about our emptiness so that we would ache for Eden. We would long for that which we were made. He wants us to feel the weight of the fall, to see the, the length of our rebellion. He wants to share with us his journey to find meaning so that we would avoid those pitfalls, right? That's what a wise person does. 
You see, this isn't to depress us. This is to liberate us. You see, wisdom begins with getting honest about the emptiness we all feel in our work, in our family, in our friends. Second, wisdom begins to take shape. Life of of living within the four-part story well is when we get honest about our control. And we see this in verse 11 and 12. You see, when I get empty or when I'm aware of my weakness, I don't actually uh, become um, relaxed. Um, My response to, to being depleted or feeling like I'm not doing well is to try harder, is, is to leverage my personality, connections, willpower, to do it, to push through, to make it. And the preacher knows this. In verse 12, he issues this warning. He says, you will want to go beyond the wisdom that I've given you here. You're gonna to wanna to add to it. You see, we're all tempted to move beyond the wisdom of the gospel to make a difference to find purpose. We're all tempted to need something more than the gospel to prove worthy and credible under the sun. I am. And he issues this warning right here in verse 12. He says, when you taste the the depth of emptiness that I'm describing to you, you are not going to want to trust. You're going to want to take. You're going to want to add and control. You see, the preacher is really going after a lie that we've all believed. And it's this lie that the good life will come through addition. If you're 15 years old, life will be good when I am 16 and can drive. If you're 18 years old, life will be great when I can move out of the house and go to college. If you're 20 years old, life will be great when I'm 21. If you're 21 years old, life will be great when I get a job. When you're 22, life will be great uh, when I can get married or have a significant relationship. If you're married, life will be great if my marriage was better. If, if, if you're, you know, moving on in your life, would be great if I could get a raise. Life would be great if, if my children and grandchildren would just believe in Jesus. Life would be great if, if, if I could retire already. I don't know what your life would be great is. This is what I said. Life would be great if my children would sleep. Life would be great if, I don't know. You see, the preacher knows that we want to add to the wisdom of God, to the wisdom of the gospel. Because we think that, 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 if, that if something, there's something more, there's got to be something supplemental. This is too simple. It's too easy. As one non-Christian put it, we're always getting ready to live, but never living. Friends, this stings. At least it's intended to. This is supposed to hurt. He says so in verse 11. He says, God's wisdom is like goads, firmly fixed nails. A goad was simply a a cattle prod. You know, think of a stick with with, with some sort of pointed uh, edge to it. And its purpose was to move and and get the attention of stubborn livestock. And so the the image is that the wisdom of God is like this cattle prod. It, it, It inflicts pain to wake us up. It inflicts pain. It doesn't kill us. It inflicts pain to tell us the truth. It inflicts pain to push us in the right direction. It hurts to hear that we want to add to the gospel. But that is what he's teaching us here. Because the preacher is begging us to stop pretending, doing a life focused on the here and now, settled with easy and light things. 
He wants our appetites to grow. One writer put it this way, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies because she can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the beach. We're far too easily pleased. The preacher is prodding us. Do not be easily pleased. Notice the emptiness of your life. Be dissatisfied so that you might find life in a generous and gracious God. Are you honest about the control that you try to seek? But by sort of asking for God's blessing for your plans, making your life go well? You see, our last stop with the preacher in this text as we live in light of the four-part story, is that we, begun, that we begin to be honest about our fear. About our fear. These things keep building on each other. We, we notice how empty and, and, and vain life uh, can and feel and be. And instead of trusting, we start to white-knuckle it. Then we're at a place where we've been told that we're doing that and we're exposed. And so now we're just scared. We're afraid. Because relinquishing control, especially when you're weak, is scary business. And the preacher is inviting us to get honest about it. One pastor wrote this prayer. Dear God, I'm so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? Who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? Please help me to gradually open my hands and discover that I am not what I own, but what you give to me. You see, we're, we're fearful of a life of receiving, of trusting. In verse 13, we're, we, we come to this phrase that, that I think many of us are afraid of, the fear of God. We're told, the preacher says, the, the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole duty of man. This wonderful phrase is just jam-packed. It, it's, it's literally like this, like, fear God, it's your life. It's all you've got. You see, we need to course correct what this means. I have to do this all the time. You see, the fear of God is not a cowering pet in the face of an abusive owner. The fear of God is not walking around in eggshells because the God we serve is uber sensitive or a little bit insecure. The fear of God is, is, is good. The fear of God is worship and wonder and gratitude. The fear of God is eager service. The fear of God is relating to him as revealed himself as the center of the story, not you and me. You see, in Psalms, there's a, there's a picture of what the fear of God looks like, and, it's, and it goes like this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, David writes. Fear is a byproduct of mercy. I was, had the privilege of working for a man right out of college, and um, he was much older than me. Um, he, he was a wise man. He, he didn't speak a whole lot. And I had a privilege of, of working really close with him. And uh, I got to know him. And, and he graciously began to share his life with me. And I wasn't expecting that as a 22, 23-year-old. And then I began to share a bit of my life with him. Um, I began to know things about him. And it, and it really meant a lot to me that, that he would be, um, had this candor with me when I didn't deserve it. And, and on this one occasion, and there were more than one, but on this one occasion, I made a mistake. I, I really messed up. 
And I'll never forget, um, the mess up that I had done affected another person as well. And this other person comes into the office and is, is really letting me have it. Um, and, and in some ways, I, I was wrong, but maybe not um, the severity of his rebuke was, was, was really worth it. But So he's, he's really going after it, and, and my boss sort of pops out of his office. And, and long story short, he essentially defends me in the face of this man who's got power, who's got relationships, who's, who's well beyond me. I feared my boss after that day. I wasn't afraid of him. I was never his equal. I enjoyed him. I respected him. I wanted to honor him with the gift of mercy that he'd given to me. You see, Newton puts it this way. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." You see, the fear of God is the fruit of life with him. It's not the way that we gain life with him. It is the way that our life looks when he has brought us in because we've experienced mercy. Y'all, we're afraid to relinquish control and we're afraid of this whole idea of fearing God. And he goes on in verse 14 and he begins to talk about judgment. That's a spooky one. At least it has been for me. In verse 14, he says, God will bring every good deed into judgment. Something I have to often do when I think about God's judgment is I have to get over this memory that I have. There was a skit that I uh, witnessed when I was a young kid at church. It was sort of like this traveling circus skit group. And they came, and I want to say the name of the skit was Heaven and Hell. And um, I will never forget this picture of, of someone um, completely decked out in black and red makeup. And I remember leaving that night thinking, I will do anything so that I don't have to be with that guy. My understanding of judgment was retributive, was, was harsh. Friends, those of us in Christ, judgment is a beautiful thing. And the preacher sees it as such. You see, judgment is the end of the story. It's when our final preacher steps out of the shadows and he makes himself plainly known for all to see. And in that day, he begins to preach and every living thing will listen. He finally is no longer turning a blind eye to the sin and brokenness of our world, the madness that we feel. He engages it in such a way that we are blessed beyond compare. For many of us, this is spooky, but for our preacher, it is a blessing because finally there will be a distinction between what is wrong and what is right. Y'all, good judgment is authentic because it says what is true. If you've anything like me, there's, there's been season in, or not, there's been times perhaps in your life where you have sort of harbored some secret. Secret about your thoughts, secret about your behavior. Uh, I don't know what it is, but something that you feel particularly ashamed of or you, you got some guilt about. And if, and, if, and if you held it a long time, it was almost like holding down a geyser. It was just there, and it was just racking you with so much guilt. And in that one day that either you got caught or you finally expressed it, you were so relieved that people knew. You finally breathed. You could care less what the consequences were. You were just glad that it was out in the open. Friends, this is the gift of judgment. It, it, it brings clarity to what's hidden. You see that right here in the text. What's secret will be seen. 
You see, we're afraid of what it means to fear God. We're afraid of what it means for him to judge. But the preacher wants us to see the beauty and the goodness of these things, what they represent in our life. You see, verse 8 says, nothing matters, vanity of vanity. Verse 14 says, everything matters. How? How? How can life be empty and yet charged with meaning? In verse 11, we're told that the preacher is not God. Everything that he's shared, we're told, has been given to him by whom? The one shepherd. You see, the preacher knows that he can't even live the wisdom he's describing. As a matter of fact, if this is Solomon, he is later written about as one who did evil in the sight of the Lord. You all know this. To know the good doesn't make you good. To know the best wisdom doesn't mean it's yours. As eloquent and true as Solomon or the preacher was, they weren't his words because he's not God. They were the preacher. They were the shepherd. Because, guys, between the nothing matters and everything matters is this one true shepherd. You see, the shepherd writes himself into the story. The meaningful one enters the vain meaninglessness that our rebellion has created. And he redeems the emptiness of this life. How? By fearing his father, by trusting his dad, by delighting in time spent with his father, by celebrating the work that his father's doing on earth, by accepting the lot that his father gave to him. He received all of life. In John chapter five, he says, I can do nothing apart from my father. This is the God man. Friends, our hope today is to not become more honest so that we can become decent people and become more wise. Our hope today is that our shepherd was. Our hope today is that he understood fully the emptiness of the world that our sin created. Our hope today is that our shepherd was, he did not seek control in his life. Our hope today is that our shepherd was not afraid, but he loved and he served. He never feared his father. And he looked forward to the day when his father would say, let's go home to be with our people. I don't know what wisdom looks like for you, but I think a place to start is that we might learn together, learn together to receive whatever lot our God gets to us. I think if we begin to learn together to enjoy whatever God has given to us with our shepherd. Friends, the only way an empty life is filled with meaning is with the shepherd. The shepherd is the one who adds meaning to your tears. The shepherd is the one who leads the celebrations of your life. The shepherd is the one who holds your depressed soul, who rebukes your angry heart. It is the shepherd only that bridges the gap between 8, verse 8, and verse 14. He is the one who is wise, and his wisdom on our behalf is the opportunity for us to experience again what it means to follow our wise shepherd. The invitation this morning is to get honest. But it's also to know that your shepherd was way honest, more honest than you and me. He was so honest. And he lived and he received all that his father had. So that as he emptied, emptied himself 
that we might become full in the light of his good news.